We want to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of Minority Report with Eric and Carell. Each episode, we talk with leaders in business, tech, and media. And joining us today is Mita Malik, Head of Diversity and Cross-Cultural Marketing at Unilever. Let's jump in and get to know Mita. Mita, welcome. How are you? I'm great today. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. Yeah, we're we're super excited to have you as well. And for those that don't know you, tell us a little bit about what's going on at work and what you're up to right now. Well, I'll start with home first. It's week 29, day three. I am counting. Uh, yes, I am counting. People laugh at me when I do that, but that's as long as we've been working remotely in a pandemic. I am quarantining in 1,500 square feet with my partner and a five and seven-year-old in Jersey City. So... It's swinging between surviving and thriving. And I start with that because I have to start with that if I'm going to talk about work, because there's no longer a separation between what we do at work and what we do at home and is now the soundtrack of our lives. And so that's, that's what I start with. And then, of course, in my day job, I am leading diversity and inclusion and cross-cultural marketing for Unilever. I can't wait to hear more about that. But first, tell us a little bit about your background and culture and identity and a little bit about your, your, your family. Tell us about Mita. Yeah, so I am the proud daughter of Indian immigrant parents. I was born and raised in the U.S. with my younger brother. And I always start out by telling people about my purpose, which is empowering those who have been excluded to help them find their voice. And once you start finding your voice, you never stop using it. And that's really tied to how I grew up. We were three families of color outside of Boston. And I grew up in a time and a place where it was not cool to be Indian. I'm sure many people can relate to that, that that still is happening in our country and in parts of the world today. But wasn't cool to listen to Bollywood music. Wasn't cool to bring an egg curry for lunch. Uh, Certainly wasn't cool to wear Indian jewelry. And I was bullied pretty heavily both physically and verbally growing up. And that and what happened to me growing up has really, whether I realized it or not, informed who I am as a leader today. So I felt like I didn't belong in my community. I also felt like I didn't belong in the world. And what I mean by that, growing up as a young brown girl, I didn't see a lot of things reflected in product and services and content. And wow, has the world changed, right? And even with the podcast yeah. you're doing, it's like phenomenal. I wish I had access to these things growing up. And so that, no surprise what I'm doing today, but that's really informed whether I realize it or not at that time, what I do today. That's amazing. And thank you for your kind words, because that's exactly what Carell and I, you know, thought about, wow, what if young Carell and young Eric had access to these types of conversations and experiences? Thank you for your courage and and sharing what you went through, because uh, a lot of folks don't always sort of talk about that, right? You bury it deep down. And and, and the reality is uh, we need more discussion around that, right? So growing up in Boston and, and going through all the things that you went through, how do you think that shaped your identity and who you are today. Yeah. Well, young Mita thanks you for this podcast. I mean that. And uh, I do this for my children as well, as I said, five and seven-year-olds who also Mm -hmm. identify as brown. And I do that work for them. And my nieces and nephews who are all bicultural, right? Biracial. And, And that's important to me. But one of the things that specifically happened to me growing up that I talk about very openly now is there was a lot of bullying incidents growing up being called names. We had the S word and N word spray painted in front of our home and we didn't have the money to actually 
repave our driveway. What should have been considered a hate crime, the town never took care of. So lots of things happened, but it was really my freshman year in high school when I was taking an intro to physical science class where there were two bullies who had been bullying me for some time, two white boys. And it escalated to the point where they set my hair on fire in that lab class. And in Indian culture, as I was growing up, it's not common for girls and women to have their hair long. So my hair was quite long, down to my knees. But the damage to my hair was done and the physical damage. My hair is okay today. But the damage to my psyche was deep. And what I remember about that is that the bullies were suspended for a day. Mm. And I remember that the guidance counselor at the time also happened to be the track coach. And he was the first person in my life who stood up for me, other than my parents and my brother, who was much younger, as an advocate for me. And so he took me under his wing and he put me on the track coach. I'm not coordinated, but I can run really fast. And that was that's when sports became a really big equalizer in my life. Because suddenly when I was running fast, I was seen as equals to all the other, all the other students. And that memory I really carried with me because in the years past, as I've like Googled the bullies and thought about like forgiveness and like why they did the things they did, the question I should have been asking is where were the parents, where were the teachers and where were the community leaders? And so that's the question I ask myself now in corporate America. When you see something, say something. Where are the people who are being the secret allies as you see the mm-hmm. need? It's time to be advocates. It's time to protect the cultures that we're building. And so that memory for me is quite strong in like what advocacy looks like. Mm-hmm. So that has really informed a lot of, honestly, that, that moment that I think about a lot has informed a lot of the work I do now. That's great. Now, I mean, we, we want to talk a little bit more about people like you just mentioned with, you know, your track coach and folks that, that can help you or, or as you're growing up or even in your career. We'll come back to that in a minute. But I'm curious, you know, how did you sort of get started down your career path? How did that sort of start? What's the genesis there? So I was always really passionate about storytelling. I was the weird kid who watched commercials. And when people used to watch commercials, I shouldn't say that because we should all still be watching commercials. My <laughs> <That's right. laughs> But I used to watch commercials and not the shows. I loved the Keebler Elf. I was obsessed with the Keebler Elf in the grocery store. My mother never bought that. We always bought the generic store brand cookies. But I was like, who's the Keebler Elf? And, you know, Rice Krispies treats, Snap Crackle Pop. I just was always obsessed with like branding and storytelling from a young age. And then as I share with you, I didn't have access to a lot of diverse content growing up. I don't identify as Black, but I identify with the Black community. I read Essence. I was obsessed with Will Smith and Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and Tatiana Ali. Like I was trying to get access to brown and Black role models, right? TLC. I was like, wow. And so it's not a surprise from that moment I went into marketing because marketing is storytelling. And as I went into marketing throughout my career, really thinking about those moments where I didn't feel included. So like being on Avino and making sure it was the first time we had black talent in a multimedia campaign or working at Avon, creating color cosmetics that actually didn't work on my skin tone. And I'm like, who are these, this, this blush doesn't show up on me. Who am I creating this for? Right. And then of course, signing um, Viola Davis, to help turn around the Vaseline business several years ago when I was leading that business. But all along the way, whether I realized it or not, just thinking about 
what about me and for the people who look like me? Why aren't we represented in these stories? Why don't these products work for us? Mm-hmm. And of course, of course, that informs some of my early experiences in life. And the storytelling aspect is, is that what you love about what you do today? I do. I think it's connected with the voices, right? And so when people ask me about my title and they say, what does this mean? It sounds really interesting, right? So head of diversity, it's about making sure there's representation around the table and being really careful. Diversity of thought is coded language for me. Diversity of thought doesn't happen without diversity of representation. And so you have to make sure you can have the representation, but do people feel like it's psychologically safe? If I speak up, does my voice matter? Do my ideas matter? And then at the same time, when you think about the other part of my role, cross-cultural marketing, you can no longer separate those two things. You can no longer separate, does your company reflect the changing demographics of the US? And then how do your brands and services and products show up in the marketplace? It's really simple. You cannot disconnect those things anymore. And I think this year has taught us that. You can't. You just can't afford it. They have to be interconnected. I absolutely agree with you 100%. That is something that if you are a senior marketer within your organization, if you are not connecting the organization's values and beliefs to the product and the messaging there, you're missing the boat. Absolutely. Absolutely. What are some of the accomplishments, I, I guess, in your career that you're most proud of? I'm proud of being a great mother proud of being, I hope, a great wife. we got to talk to my husband about that. Get him on the podcast. Great, great sister, great mom, great, great daughter, great friend. I mean, those are the things that are the most important to me. And then career-wise, I would say I was really proud in 2018 when we became the number one company for working mothers. Mm. And that was a real moment. It was the first time that Working Mother Media had ever named a number one company and they've been around for 35 years. But we made so much progress in that space. And for me, it's not just about working mothers, working fathers, working families. And even as you're seeing in the pandemic, how many people, multi-generational families moving in together for all different reasons. So I think that's really important. But I think creating a, a culture that is inclusive for women, and I think being very specific about that, white women, women of color, black, African-American, Hispanic, Latinx, Asian, calling out like women in the broadest sense. Mm. Do you think our industry is moving in the right direction as it relates to that? And what are some things that we should be doing as individuals and as organizations to create a more inclusive environment? I have to say yes, because Otherwise, I can't be doing this job. I'm a half-class full person. I have to stay optimistic, right? I mean, I can't. Otherwise, I should pick a different profession because this is hard work. And progress is slow. It is. But we have to keep at it. But I do think since the killing of George Floyd, the flame that was already ignited in our country that exploded, and the death of so many Black and brown individuals, either through police brutality or COVID, there's been so much happening in the world, in this country today that I feel very optimistic and positive that there's an awakening and people are paying attention. What I would say to you when people say, what can I do? What can I do in my organization to help, to be an inclusive leader? And what I say is the following. If you are a white leader who comes to me, for example, and cares deeply and says Black Lives Matter, 
Black Lives Matters to me? Like, what can I do? The question I will ask you back is, what sort of deep cross-cultural relationships do you have at home? Because last year as a country alone, we spent $8 billion on diversity and inclusion training with a B, $8 billion. And I tell you, yes, this work starts at home. If you don't know a single Black or Brown person in your life and have a meaningful relationship with them, I don't know how to help you when you come to work, right? And I mean that sincerely because I think training does work. Training works. It's like learning a language, right? Those building blocks are important. I do think training is important in organizations. But what I would ask is, what are you doing at home? And I ask leaders questions like, let's pretend this was pre-pandemic, but how do you spend your weekends? Where do you live? What restaurants are you visiting? Who are your neighbors? Who cuts your hair? Where do you go grocery shopping? And then when you have big life decisions to make, who are the five people that you call? And if they all look and act like you, we are self-segregating without realizing it. And so that's where the real work begins, is in our homes and in our communities before we even enter work. Because I just shared so much of my life experience with you. That's informed who I am today. Mm-hmm. So how can I not be taking that to work? I am taking that to work with me every day. Right? Right. Yeah. yeah, and it speaks to the point of diversity, equity, and inclusion can't be this thing that's in a box, right? It can't be a part of your work life. Like It needs to be a part of who you are as an individual. I, I believe that's what you're, you're getting at, and I, I totally agree with that. And so, you know, it's interesting. One of the things we started doing at Unilever is I created a monthly courageous conversation series on race, and it is with our partners, Language Culture Worldwide, woman-owned business out of Chicago. They're phenomenal diversity partners. A big shout out to Monica Marcel and Chuck Adams, who work very closely with us. So we started a series to that point that we have to start educating people on some of these broader topics and some of the things we've never actually learned in school or we don't actually have access to understanding now. So the first one I started off with was, let's talk about Amy Cooper and understanding white privilege and what happened in Central Park. And so it's a lecture style format where it's for the first half hour, we dissect what happened in Central Park that day. But the next half hour is really education around privilege and policing in this country and the history of that. And we have thousands of people dial in and it's a Q&A format style. And it's also a safe place to learn these topics. We ask you to dial in with grandparents, roommates, your pet, anyone, like just come and join us. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the one we did after that was Aunt Jemima, Uncle Ben's cream of wheat. Let's unpack racism at the kitchen table. And actually just last night, connected to this topic, we talked about how to talk to your kids about race. Mm. Mm. And so these are the things that we really want to push. And when I say leaders at Unilever, I mean everyone. Everyone's a leader. We want to really push you and make you uncomfortable because that's when we're going to grow. If I don't make you uncomfortable, I'm not doing my job. Uh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. You know, you talked earlier about the unfortunate incident you had when, when you were a kid in, in school and, and, you know, facing discrimination slash hate crime is, is what I'll, I'll call it. What advice would you give to anyone today that may be out there listening that might be going through something similar or, or facing some form of discrimination? I would say speak up. Speak up and tell your truth. Yeah. I think also 
my parents being immigrant parents, they loved us and did the best they could. I don't think they knew what to do mm. because they had come from another country. I don't think they, they understood that they could go talk to the principal or go talk to the administration. Mm-hmm. And so I think going to people in authority, wherever that is, whether that's at work, whether that's at school, whether that's in your community, you know, speaking up if you are being bullied. I think the second thing is finding advocates and finding those people who will speak up for you. In my case, it was my track coach. But if there is something that's happening at work, to find another leader who you can talk to about. And I think that's so important. And I think on the flip is, you see something, you say something. We all have to be advocates for each other. Yeah. So if something's happening to me and you see it, to say something. And I think in those moments to stand up publicly. And what I would say, and we all know this, is like advocacy will cost you something. It's not for free, right? It will cost you your pride. It could cost you physical, emotional comfort. It could cost you financially. But I think the cost of not doing something is greater. And we know that. Yeah. Amita, I want to I want to stay on that topic a little bit. You know, you talked about your track coach and then also just advocates in, in, in your life and in career. Can you tell us a little bit more about some some folks who were advocates or, or folks that sort of helped you move forward in many different ways? I've had so many people in my life. Gosh, my dad, rest in peace, who we lost three years ago suddenly, was really, I think, an advocate for me in terms of education and pushing us really far into places that we didn't think we'd be able to go or achieve. Mm. My brother, my husband, my mom, all of my, all the people in my personal life. I would say that at work, it's been a village of people who have helped me. There's one person in particular, Gail Tifford, who's now the chief brand officer at WW, who I call my fairy godmother. (laughs) And we work together at Unilever. But she said something pretty profound to me several years ago which was that bad managers will always happen. Find the people who are going to advocate for you behind closed doors. Do you know who's talking about your career when you're not in the room? And I was like, what? People are talking about my career when I'm not in the room? Like, especially in large organizations, right? Like, I didn't realize that. And part of my growing up, as I shared with all of you, is like, my tiger dad, love him. He was always like, keep your head down, stay out of trouble, work hard, and you will be recognized. And that is not how it works in corporate America. It's not that we're running a company of 10 people. I don't have a basement. I live in a condo from my kitchen sink, making lotion, and we all know each other really well. Mm. But it's like corporations are large, right? And so you have got to build your personal brand connected to the points you're putting on the board and the success and progress you're making for the company and so that was like mind-blowing advice yeah like wow like i had never thought about them i'm just going to work really hard and people will know i'm working hard you know what what are you reading and what are you following to sort of stay informed you know what what's helping you to stay informed and that you love sort of consuming and, and reading to sort of move throughout the day the week the month i don't think i've read a book in many months because I have a five and seven year old and we're living in a pandemic. I did the, the last book I read, which is, is great, but embarrassing. It's been so long was Michelle Obama's Becoming. 
and regardless of what your political leaning is, phenomenal book. And, you know, she talks about microaggressions and the way she says it is so powerful because she talks about it's the little cuts you endure every day and they accumulate over a lifetime and they can have a devastating impact on your sense of self and self-confidence. So phenomenal book. I'm reading, I read Fast Company, Business Insider, HBR. I'm on LinkedIn a lot. I'm reading a lot of what influencers are putting out there. Yeah, I'm just reading a ton. Bite-sized content. I can't really read large <laughs> large materials now with the children at home, but your podcast is great. So there's so many different, there's so much audio out there as well now. So that's really exciting. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Where do you draw inspiration from? I mean, you've got everything going on at work. You're, you know, a mother, a wife, a thought leader in the space, so on and so forth. What, like, what keeps you going? Where do you draw inspiration? Um, I color and draw a lot with my kids. I watch Peppa Pig. I'm a big Peppa Pig fan. I, but, you know, my hobbies, I joke, but my hobbies are all the things my kids like to do. And I think that's the moments where you draw an inspiration, I think, when you can disconnect and do something different. I'm not a big animal lover. My son is. I guess he got that from my husband. So, like, <laughs> if we're out exploring and looking for bugs and things that I don't really like. But those are moments when I think we can disconnect our brains to do activities where we get inspiration. I think there's been a lot of discussion about this and things I've been reading is that a lot of the inspiration I draw is from human connection. So I miss access to friends, my community, as we all do. I miss bumping into people at work and sparking on an idea. Yeah. And so whether that's trying to disconnect from like the Zoom overload to like talking to friends on my phone, actually, which is sort of strange because it was usually texting, but now I'm just dialing and not with video, <laughs> right? And so just finding those moments to reconnect with people that matter to you, but also I'm just, I'm excited to meet the two of you. I'm excited to meet new people because that's where you draw inspiration from. And so I'm trying to be more mindful about scheduling that without the overload that we're all feeling in sort of the video audio space of constantly being on. Yeah. And and that point about meeting new people is one of the reasons why Eric and I love doing this podcast. And we totally get your point about kids. I have two girls and Eric Eric has three kids himself. So So one question I, I love asking every guest we have on the podcast is give me the top three apps that you use on your phone but you cannot name email, calendar, or text messaging. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> LinkedIn for sure. Yep. Very active on LinkedIn. Oh, I'm going to do four. All right. All right. Instagram. I've been more on Instagram. Okay. Truly, I don't tell my husband because I'm trying to look uh. for houses. <laughs> he may hear this himself when it comes <laughs> so, you know, I'm like, oh, let's see what's now. We're we're staying in Jersey City and the Weather Channel. I've got to know what the weather's like. So those are my those are my apps. Amazing. Well, Nita, we can't thank you enough for spending some time with us. We're grateful and thank you for sharing everything that you just shared with us. You know, a lot of our listeners love to stay in touch or follow a lot of our guests. Can you can you tell our guests how they can follow you or how they can reach out to you? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. So feel free to reach out to me. I'm also on Instagram and Twitter. And I love meeting new people. So please drop me a line. 
hopefully we can spark some inspiration together in collaboration. And thank you so much for having me. And thank you for all that you both are doing with your podcast. Excellent. Thanks for, for helping us. And thanks for, for joining us. For all of you listening, trying to find other episodes, please find us where you find all of your audio and video and just search Minority Report podcast and look for the logo. Thanks. Thanks.